Well, good afternoon, everybody, on this uh, wet and windy day. I hope you can see the, the screen. And those of you at the very back, for whatever reason, um, I hope you've got good eyesight. So what I want to do today is um, talk about nanotechnology. I want to give you a glimpse as to what that world looks like. I want to say a little bit about um, some of the applications that you will see or have already seen. And then I'm going to say something about what my current research is, and that will give you the strongest indication in my talk of where I personally think the major advances in nanotechnology will be and will affect all of you in the next five to ten years. So, I always like to remind uh, myself, as well as you today, that the word nano has been around now since... Um, I, when I was doing nanotechnology in, in, in the USA in 1985, I was doing it without knowing it was called nanotechnology. So when I eventually realized I was doing nanotechnology, it was about 1990. So probably the, the word has been around since, since then. And it's become um, very, a very common term in the language. And I just want to remind all of you what the nano bit really means and how incredible it actually is. So a, a nanometer, which is where the nanotechnology comes from, is a thousandth of a millionth of a meter. So a billionth of a meter. Now, I can't very easily indicate that with my fingers. But I can give you an indication, a scaling indication, by using a different size range. And the size range I'm going to use is um, 1,000 kilometers down to a millimeter. So that's this factor of 10 to the minus 9, which is a thousandth of a billionth. And so I'm just going to show you a series of images. First one, a satellite image, which will be 1,000 kilometers across, and then go down in steps of a factor of a tenth until we get to a millimeter. And if you imagine doing that for a, a meter rather than a thousand kilometers, then you'll have got a sense of how small the nanometer is. So here's the um, satellite map. You can see the Alps very clearly, uh, Mediterranean, eastern France. So that's 1,000 kilometers across. So we're just going to go down sequentially. So that's 100, 10. And now we're actually uh, near an airport in Geneva. So we're going to keep going down. And in the car park of the airport is a garden with some flowers in the garden. And if we get very close, on sat on one of the leaves of the flowers is a housefly. Slightly artificial, admittedly, but. <laughs> and if we get very close to the house fly, we can see its compound eye, and that's about one millimeter in diameter. So we've just gone from 1,000 kilometers down to a millimeter, and a nanometer is the same aspect ratio uh, as, that, as that reduction in size. So from that down to a nanometer. And what's incredible to me is that uh, when we talk about nanotechnology, 
we are talking about um, an ability that we now have in science and engineering to make, to measure, and to use structures on actually a lot smaller than that, that scale. So it's an incredible uh, part of the evolution of technology. Uh, and just to show you how popular it is, both from a scientific and from an economic perspective, this is simply the um, growth in the number of publications that are nano-related. And if you just look at the, any one of these lines, whether it's from the USA, Japan, the EU, China, or Korea, you can see they're all going up. And the growth rate is still increasing, even though we're 2012. I said it was about 1990 when the, the, the term was coined, but it's still growing. So it's an incredible uh, growth process that we're on. And of course, that growth process is... Um, is fueled by money. So this is the world R&D funding for nanotechnology, nanoscience, in millions of dollars. So this is $9 billion. So you can see the total funding is also going up. Every part of the world has got increasing funding. And that's now currently running at about $8 billion a year. So there's, there's a massive increase in investment a massive increase in publications. There are similar curves for the number of people being employed, the number of nanoscientists. There are about 600 nanoscientists at the University of Cambridge alone. So it's a, an incredible growth process that we're in the middle of. Now, I, I kept saying, I, well, I said at the start that nanotechnology is... Is, is, is engineering on a very small scale. And it's not anything new. Uh, the nano bit simply is a measure of how small we can make things. And we've been making things smaller and smaller for a long time. You can go back to Stonehenge if you want to and think of that as a, 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 some sort of timepiece, perhaps. Um, but we've been making ever smaller structures, ever smaller devices, ever smaller components. So there's a, a, a process of miniaturization. And the one that perhaps you're most familiar with is the miniaturization in electronics, which is responsible for your computers, your mobile phones, your digital cameras. And I want to use that as an example of miniaturization and show you where the advantage comes from that miniaturization. So um, if you think of an electrical circuit or a computer circuit, the functional element of that circuit is a transistor. A transistor has three uh, legs, three, three, three wires attached to it. And if you go back to the early 1900s, that transistor equivalent was a valve. And there's the three legs. And you can see glass body, uh, metal inside. This is an evacuated glass body. That valve is about that big. So that's one transistor equivalent. In the 1930s, the first solid state transistor was produced out of solid material, solid semiconductor. And that's it. And you can see the three electrodes again. There's one here, one here, and one at the bottom. 
So we've now gone from a composite structure of glass and metal with a vacuum to just all solid material. And that's a really important step. The next step was to, rather than make this a three-dimensional object, which is also about that big, a couple of centimetres in size, the first world's integrated circuit in about 1971, and that had 11 of those transistors on, and that was also about that big. Then we come to a, 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 an integrated circuit, a computer chip of today, which is also about that big. And these are what the components look like. But now, there is not one component, not 11 components, there's a billion, 10 to the 9, 1,000 million. So in fact, that ratio of going from there back to the valve, that 1,000 billion, is exactly the same ratio of going from a meter to a nanometer. So an incredible revolution in miniaturization. What does that actually mean? What I've done is I've done a, a crude calculation of how much energy is required to run a computer. And the two computers I'm using, one is the Colossus computer, which was used to solve um, encrypted codes in the Second World War, leading computer of its time, 5,000 valves, and uh, a processor in my Samsung S3 phone one that you probably some of you have, in, have here today. It's an ARM processor, so designed in the UK. So if we start with the size, the Colossus computer's in a large room. Uh, the A9 processor is about one centimeter, so it's about that big. What's the smallest feature size? In the Colossus, it's about 0.1 millimeter. Um, in the S3 phone, it's 40 nanometers. Only 40 nanometers, so that's the nanotechnology bit. Um, speed, the Colossus did 5, 000, processed 5,000 characters per second, so there's not a straightforward comparison, but um, the A9 processor does about 2 billion processes a second. The number of transistors or valves was 2,400 on the Mark II Colossus in the a9, there's 26 million. So you see we've got a incredibly faster and a lot more complexity. And where it really tells is in how much energy this uses. So the power used by the Colossus was 10 kilowatts, so that's five um, electric fires, effectively. The power requirement of the A9 is 1.9 watts, 2 watts. So then I, I worked out how long would the Colossus take to do the same calculation that the processor in the mobile phone takes in one second. So the mobile phone takes a second. The Colossus takes 120 years to do the same. And then if you look at the energy used, um, in that one second, the, the A9 uses two joules, which is almost nothing. Uh, the energy used by the Colossus is 40 million million joules, and that equates to running 20 billion electric kettles for a second, whereas this is just equivalent to running a thousandth of an electric kettle. 
So what has Nano given you here? It's given you incredible increase in the number of transistors, an incredible increase in speed, and an incredible decrease in energy consumption. And all of those things work to our advantage. So that's just the miniaturization story. And I want to use this slide because um, the Nobel Prize was given for effectively nanotechnology to two people, Heine Rohr and Gert Binnig, who invented the scanning tunneling microscope, who I worked with in the 1980s. And I want to pay particular tribute because Heine Rohr uh, died eight days ago today. And he was a real, he was a great communicator. Nobel laureates can be, have different flavors. Uh, he was the flavor of somebody who immediately wanted to go back and talk to the students in the lab and engage. So um, hugely respected and a great person. But what he pointed out, alongside the fact that technology is making things smaller, is that that confluence on a length scale, the nanometer, was not restricted just to computer chips. So this curve is just showing you, this graph is showing you a scale up here and time along the bottom. And here's the bit I just showed you, the miniaturization going down to a nanometer. So that's the valve to the A9 processor. At the same time, chemistry was becoming more complex. So rather than simple molecules like carbon monoxide or oxygen, it became able to understand, synthesize, characterize bigger and bigger molecules. So the molecules that chemistry was able to understand and use grew in size up to the nanometer scale. And at the same time, of course, there was things like the discovery of DNA, which is about a nanometer in diameter, and an understanding of the complexity of life on the nanometer scale, which is macromolecules and biology. And you can see they all come together on this one length scale, this nanometer. So if nothing else today, remember that nano is about this incredible miniaturization, which is in itself an enormous opportunity, as I showed with the processor. But it's also about a, a, a tremendous potential for different fields to work together, which I will show you during my talk. So it's multidisciplinary because there's a unifying length scale, and it's the ultimate in what nature has provided us in our ability to understand and use everything around us. Now, so that's uh, one part of it is miniaturization, so making things smaller. But what happens when you make things smaller? Are they the same as a bigger object? If I take a piece of plastic, red plastic, and I cut it up and I keep cutting it up, is it still a piece of red plastic when I make it a few nanometers in size? It isn't. It isn't for two reasons. The first is that if I take an, a large object, like a brick, most of the object is inside. All the atoms are inside. The surface is relatively small. But when I make that brick smaller and smaller, the ratio of surface to volume 
starts to increase. So in this example here, if I take a cubic centimetre of any material, so a cube about that big, um, that one centimetre cube has got six square centimetres of surface. If I start breaking that cube up into eventually one nanometre cubes and just work out the surface, I end up with 6,000 square metres, not six square centimetres, which is about that big, but 6,000 square metres, which is several um, football pitches. So you make things smaller, and all of a sudden, there's a lot more surface. And surfaces are nearly always different to what's inside a material. And surfaces are incredibly important. Everything you taste relies upon surfaces in your mouth or the back of your throat. How computer chips pass electricity from one component to another, they have to pass it through a surface. Um, what your, how your windscreens behave in your car, whether they wash the, wash the rain off easily or not, depends upon the surface. How shiny your shoes are, how shiny your silverware at home is, if you've got any. All of that depends on the surface. So surfaces are incredibly important. So if you make things smaller, the amount of surface goes up, which you can use. Catalysis uses the surface. If you want to use, uh, make energy from different types of materials, you need a catalyst, and you need to expose as much surface area as possible. So the surface area goes up. But the other thing that happens is that the proportion of surface atoms goes up. Now, that may seem obvious because the surface has gone up, but surface atoms don't behave in the same way as atoms inside. If you think of an atom inside, it's surrounded by other atoms. In every direction you look, there's another atom. On the surface, in one direction you can see atoms, on the other direction you see nothing. And atoms on the surface have to accommodate themselves to the fact that they're not surrounded on all sides by the other atoms. So they behave differently. They have a different behavior. And that means that if you can control the number of surface atoms and you can optimize or maximize their number, you can control the properties of that surface. So you make things smaller, you have more surface, and you have more surface atoms, and that gives you an extra parameter to play with. But there's one other very important factor. Everything around you, uh, whether it's the color, whether it's the fact that those aluminium girders that are stopping the rain coming in are strong and stiff, uh, whether it's, whether, whether it's a material is magnetic or not, whether it passes electricity through it or not, depends upon processes that go on inside the material on the scale of a nanometer. It's not the atoms by themselves, it's some other property of how those atoms together work that gives you a behavior. So, for example, if I take a piece of copper, which you all know conducts, conducts electricity well, and I start making it smaller and smaller and smaller, eventually it won't conduct electricity well. And it does that before it gets to one atom in size. 
And it does that because what makes a metal conduct electricity depends upon not the atoms themselves, but how the atoms all work together and how they interact with the electrons that are passing through in the electrical current. And there are a whole range of these lengths, and they all happen to be on the nanometer range. So, and I've just plotted some here, some magnetic properties, mean free path of an electron, that's related to the, the resistivity, the resistance of a material, um, optical properties, whatever it is. The point here is that everything happens on the range of nanometers. So if I can control structures on this size range, not only can I make them small, and I might be able to do something with their surfaces, but I can also change their intrinsic behavior. And the, most, the simplest example of that is just to show you what happens if I change the size of a colored particle. So these are three test, uh, five test tubes, cadmium selenide particles of different size. So the only difference between these is the size of the particle. They're all in the nanometer range, but because they interact, because the, the way they interact with the light changes with size, they have different colors. So uh, you choose one size particle and it's blue, you start changing the size and it ends up to be red. So I can choose this, the color of an object not because if it's copper, it's a copper colored, but I can, I can decide for some materials what color I want it to be simply by changing its, its size. I can, get a, I can take a metal that is brittle, that is ductile, that I can easily deform at room temperature. I can make it small and I can make it as hard as glass. I can take a magnetic material which, has, which behaves like uh, as you get it in a compass normally and has no magnetic properties when it's very small. So by making structures on the nanometer size and controlling them precisely, I can control their physical properties. I can make them what I want, not what nature provides for the larger object. So that's the power of nano. It's that combination of making things small, the availability of all that surface area, and the fact that there is an interplay between the fundamental physical properties of the material and the shape and size of the object. So let me show you now a few images of what... Um, what it looks like on the nano scale, what the world looks like on the nano scale. So the first, this is a picture I took in uh, February 1985 in IBM, in one of the first scanning tunneling microscopes. And these are images of silicon atoms. So each one of these tiny white dots is a silicon atom. So that's um, absolute evidence that we can see on the scale of the atoms around us. This is what a crystal surface looks like. This is iron silicide, iron and silicon. Um, you can see these flat orange regions of one layer of atoms. 
Uh, each little step in this direction, which I hope you can see, is just one atom thick. And the steps this way are five or six atoms thick. But that's what the surface of a crystal looks like. It's a set of steps of atoms. This is a material which um, is deposited in diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, which we work on. So if you take a protein, A beta in the case of Alzheimer's disease, if you allow it to polymerize, so you take one protein molecule, then another, then another, and you let them build up naturally together, they form beautiful nanostructures. So this is an image of a protein that's formed these nanostructures. They're tiny filaments like spiders' um, threads, but they're only a few nanometers in diameter. And this is just one of those, and you can see it's a beautiful helical structure. If you have Alzheimer's disease, this is the plaque, the so-called plaque that's deposited in the brain. And it's made up of these nanostructures. And we have a, a long program of work in understanding these structures using nanoscience tools so that we can understand more and more about human diseases like Alzheimer's. So looking is not just restricted to materials like silicon or metals. It can be applied to almost anything. Let me show you what two materials look like uh, in real time, because atoms don't sit still. They jiggle about. So I'm going to show you two short movies from a colleague of mine, Fleming Basenbacher at Aarhus University in Denmark. <clears throat> the first is a, a silver island, so a piece of silver metal. And this bit, this, this part in the middle here, this rough hexagonal shape, is one atom higher than the black region. So what you're looking at here, you've got a red region on the outside, and then there's a one atom step, and then there's a little island in the middle of silver atoms, but only one atom thick. So if I animate that, we'll just see what happens to this surface. Without doing anything, we're just looking at it. And what you can see is that little island in the middle is actually disappearing. How is it doing that? Well, the atoms on the edge are running across that black region, too fast to be seen, and they're sticking on this edge. And they just run around and disappear. So atoms uh, on a surface of a material do not sit there and do nothing. They move about. And we can see that in the scanning tunneling microscope, in one of the, the tools that nanoscience uses. This is an image of platinum, a platinum surface. And platinum has got nice rows of atoms. These lines down here are just long rows of atoms. And every now and again, an atom sits in between the rows, and it's, that's these little yellow lines. So in the middle there is an atom that sits between the rows. If I, when I animate this, what I want you to look at is the difference between the atoms in this row and the little yellow atoms. And you can see that in the rows, nothing is happening, but the atoms here are not quite happy with their surface. They're not happy that they're not 
attached in the same way as these atoms are, so they move around. And that's a graphic example of why, how surface atoms are different to atoms inside. Atoms inside are static. The atoms on the surface can move about. We can do more than just simply look. We can also sense properties on the atomic scale. And the simplest thing we can do, if you think of a, a battery with a plus and a minus, we can measure the current into an atom in one direction and then measure the current in the opposite direction and see what the, how the atom responds. And these images, these are the red circles, the red dots, are single silicon atoms. And that's the current going into the surface. And the same area, if I measure the current coming out by just changing the polarity of the battery, I get these green dots. They're not really green or red. I've just added the color to make it clear to the eye. If I put those two images together, what you see is that the red and the green are not in the same place. So the current in one direction goes through the atom. <coughs> in the other direction, it goes in between the atoms. You can see that very clearly here, red, green, red, green. So now we're looking at the electrical behavior of atoms one at a time. So we can see the, the bonds between the atoms <coughs> and measure their electrical behavior. If I take a magnetic material, this is cobalt, and I make it absolutely physically flat, so it's a polished surface, and instead of looking at how flat it is, I look at whether what its magnetic properties are, I get this image. Now, what does this image show you? If you think of a simple bar magnet with a north and a south, the yellow is where the north is pointing out of the surface, and the dark color is where the north is pointing in, so the south is pointing out. So this is showing you the magnetic complexity, the structure of that cobalt surface, not in terms of its physical structure, but in terms of its magnetic structure. And the distance between what two of these north regions on the surface is only the order of a few hundred nanometers. So the tools of nanoscience, these looking tools, have allowed us to see not just the atoms of everything around us, but we can probe all sorts of properties. We can understand why metals conduct electricity. We can understand why magnetic materials are magnetic. We can look at those properties directly. Now, if you've, if once you start to look at a surface and you can understand the science behind it, the next thing you want to do is, well, I want to make something of my own now. I want to make a nanostructure. And we can do that in a number of ways. The simplest way is you take a surface and you fire a beam of electrons at it, just like you writing with a pencil 
except with electrons. And where the electrons go, they leave a pattern. And so here's a beam of electrons, and here's, here's a pattern being written. And here's one that we've done. We've just made a simple mesh-like structure. But look at the size. That's 8 nanometers. Now, I said the A9 processor in my Samsung phone had a 40 nanometer design rule. So 40 nanometers is about that distance. But we can make structures a lot smaller than that already. So the A9 processor um, is a long way off from being as small as it could be because of the tools that we can, we can employ to make uh, structures on the nanoscale. So we can write electrons. So that's one thing. A colleague of mine at IBM made structures from single atoms. So he put atoms on a surface and he moved them around one by one. And if, when I animate this, you'll see this is the world's smallest advert. So these, yellow, these white dots here, they're not dots, they've been horribly computer... Um, what's the word? They've been... What's the word? Enhanced. <laughs> it took me four hours to drive here today. So. <clears throat> so this is one atom, okay? And you're just going to get a computer-animated fly-through of this, um, of this structure. <laughs> That's the world's most precise structure. The atoms, individual atoms put into less than a fraction of an atom's diameter put into place one by one to make an exquisite nanostructure. So that's what we would call bottom-up. Bottom-up because we've taken an atom and we've moved it around and put it into place. Now, in fact, life and chemistry does that beautifully. If you grow a crystal... If you grow a human being, you are assembling atoms into complex structures, into DNA, into proteins, into cells, into organs, into a body. So we can do the same, but the advantage we have with nanotechnology is that we can decide how nature allows these structures to form, how the atoms are initially assembled, and how that process develops over time. And just to give you a very simple example of that, um, this is making a material called silicon carbide. So this is silicon and carbon. It's a common material. It's a black, shiny, hard material, like diamond except black. But we can do, we can do a lot better than that. We can, we can make any sort of structure that we like by controlling the way the silicon and the carbon atoms actually come together to grow into a crystal. So this is a phase diagram. Phase diagram means that we vary one um, parameter against another parameter, and then we can decide what the structure might be by varying the two. So here's um, silicon carbide. Here we made a big, what we call a, a, a big flower, medium-sized flower, smaller flowers, wires, uh, tiny little bits, and conical structures. All the same material, exactly the same material, except we can control 
what we get on the, on the nanometer scale. And this is um, those flower-like structures. And they turns out they have a remarkable property. So if we coat a surface with those flowers, invisible to the naked eye, uh, that's a picture of the flowers taken in an electron microscope. What we found is that the, this coating almost perfectly repels water. So if you wanted to have a windscreen in a car where you didn't need windscreen wipers, you could coat your windscreen with this material and the rain would just bounce off. And just to prove that, I'm going to show you a, a movie of a tiny droplet of water dropping onto a, a normal surface and then onto this surface coated with these tiny flowers. And what do you expect to happen if I drop water onto a normal surface? Well, it'll, the drop will come down and it will just flatten out. Uh, so that's fine. So you're going to see a, a short sequence, normal surface first, and then I want you to see what happens to a, um, a surface coated in these flowers. So there's the blop, and it does what you, pretty much what you expect, sticks on the surface. Now we do it with our flowers. There's the droplet. <laughs> so you didn't think water bounced. Actually, if you look at the physics of how this works, uh, that water droplet, if you go and buy a super ball from a child's toy shop, which bounces high, that typically bounces back. If you dropped it from a meter, a super ball would bounce back on a perfect surface to about 70 centimeters. So that's a bouncy surface on, say, granite. Uh, sorry, a bouncy ball on granite. That water droplet, which we all know is a squishy material, actually, actually bounces back, would bounce back to 80 centimetres. It's more bouncy than a super ball. Now, clearly the water isn't bouncy. It's, we've made the surface bouncy. We've made the surface repel the water to such a degree that as soon as it touches it, it wants to get away as quickly as it can. So we've made that surface super hydrophobic, super water hating. So that's an example of a simple nano coating with a very useful property. Right, I'm going to rest my voice for a little moment and show you a movie that we made with Nokia. Um, I've edited it and it's on the internet. If you go to YouTube and type in M-O-R-P-H and Nokia, you'll find the full movie. And what we did is we... Uh, Nokia came to Cambridge to set up their European Research Centre in, in, in my lab. And what we did is we used what was in the lab and we let Nokia turn what they saw in our lab into what they want in their next mobile phone, or their mobile phone of the future. This is, so this is the nano future bit. So let me show you the movie. I hope the sound's off because it's... The music isn't very nice. I'll turn the sound off. So it's called Morph, is this concept phone. It won the Red Dot Award in two, 20, uh, 2010. 
which is an international design award. And you can see the quality of this indicates it wasn't done in a university because we could never afford it. So this was done by Nokia in Helsinki. So there's a lady, she's got this Morse morph phone, this green phone. It's in two parts. There's a little bit which is a sort of communication medium. And the phone is, has got a number of properties, so it's, it's flexible, which is not difficult to do. And while she's put it on her, put it on her wrist, she's talking through this little uh, connector. So what does this phone, what other properties does this phone have? Um, the one they really liked was the ability to sense. And in fact, this, this phone senses smell, senses uh, aromas. So she's got an apple. She wants to check if the apple has been coated in um, any nasty chemicals in the processing. So she waves the phone at the apple. And on the surface of the phone are tiny sensors. Now, these are actually sensors that we have in the lab that do exactly this. They smell. And the phone tells her that this is not safe to eat. It detects some pathogens on the surface of the apple. So the phone is smelling. So it, it interacts with the environment. Now, I've already shown you the, the, the water droplet. We can and how we can make a, a surface repeller water droplet. We can also modify that, and this is honey, which is the most difficult material. Uh, you drop honey on this surface, coated in these tiny nanoflowers, and it runs off. And some of you may have seen that there's a Sony phone that's been advertised in the past couple of weeks you can drop in the bath. That's coated in a superhydrophobic surface. So the surface of this phone is superhydrophobic, And the last part of this that Nokia particularly liked is the thought of being able to bend the phone around. So in this, this part, you take a photograph of um, a bag. Put, that's the attached device. Save the image. Put the phone on the wrist. Lock its shape so it doesn't fall off. And then just transfer the image you've taken. And now the phone matches the bag. I did say it was Nokia dreaming. <laughs> okay, so that I think is all the things I've shown you in something real. And some of those things are already happening. I mean, when we did this a few years ago, um, we knew, there, there are more examples in the full movie, we knew that um, all these things were possible and some of them were already out there. Expect all of those things within a few years. So now I want to sort of finish off and talk briefly about what I am currently working on. This is literally my latest research. And it is to try and target a particularly aggressive brain cancer with nanotechnology. So I'm working with... Colin Watts, who's a surgeon in Adambrooks Hospital in Cambridge, and he operates and treats patients with glioblastoma, which is a particularly difficult cancer to treat. And we wanted to try and think of a way of targeting this cancer and finding a way to um, 
attack it. Now, this is not being done in patients. This is being done in the lab, but it's being done both in my lab and in Colin's lab in Cambridge. And the, the, the simple idea is that we want to uh, use nanoparticles, very small particles, with very clever properties. We want to smuggle them inside a cancer cell and then zap the cell and kill them. So the way we do this is that after surgery on a Friday morning, we take the tumour that's been excised, we harvest the cells, we put them in a, a liquid to allow them to carry on growing and developing, and then we experiment on those cells. So we're experimenting on real cells taken from a patient, and that's extremely important. So what, what is the, the plan? The plan is that this nanoparticle is going to have a, a number of um, attributes. The first is it's going to have a tiny gold particle in the middle. Gold is an inert material. Tiny gold particle. And we're going to use the radiotherapy that cancer patients have as part of their treatment to excite a process in the gold, which I'll show you in a minute. The second part is that we want to coat that gold with some special materials that trick, first of all, target only the glioblastoma cell, no other cell in the body. So they don't go into any other cell, they only pick on the glioblastoma. And they cause a tiny hole to open up in the cell, the outside of the cell, and they get drawn into the cell. So it's like a Trojan horse. Stick on the outside, the cell opens a little pathway, the, the particle comes inside. We then zap it with the x-rays, with the radiotherapy, and then we get a number of things happening. And one of the things that we put around this gold nanoparticle is a chemotherapy drug. So we're trying to, rather than giving your whole body the chemotherapy, we're trying to smuggle it inside just the cancer cells and then make it even more, much more effective than it would be if it was just given intravenously. So here's what the particle roughly looks like. There's a gold nanoparticle in the middle, and then we have just different layers around it to smuggle it in and release the effect. So the first trick is getting it inside the cell and getting it concentrated in the cell. So here's a cancer cell, glioblastoma cell. The blue in the, in the middle is the nucleus of the cell, and that's the place you want to attack. Now, I'm really sorry, but the, this is not so clear, but this top one is just a gold nanoparticle by itself. We put into the solution with all the cells, and you can see lots of particles outside the cell, almost nothing inside. Then we put our little cloaking coating around the cell, around the nanoparticle, and now you, I think you can all see we've got them all inside the cell and critically all inside the nucleus. So we smuggled these into the cell and there they are exactly in the right place. That's just after five hours. And just to prove they're inside, because this is just looking from above, we have to look from the side and this is, this is just showing these green particles inside the cell, the uncoated, you can see nothing. So we've got them in the cell, so that's the first um, 
hurdle. And this is just what we have to do. We have to count how many cells we've got them inside and how much, how successful we've been. So this just shows you, yes, we've been extremely successful. This is the coated, this is the uncoated. They're in the cell. So the next thing we do is we um, give the cells a dose of radiotherapy, just as you would uh, in a treatment. And we, we monitor the health of the cell by looking at some particular metabolic pathways in the cell which glow. And the ones that we're interested in, in this image, are the ones that glow green. Glowing green means we've damaged the DNA in the cell, which means it can't replicate and it will die. So on the bottom here are cells that have had nothing done to them. They're just left to grow, and you see they're all red, which means they're healthy, viable cells. This is uh, 10 grays of radiation. That's just a measure of the quantity of radiotherapy. And you can see that there are green areas. Green means damage. So that's just showing you radiotherapy works, which we knew already. Then we put in our nanoparticles, and you can see there's a lot more green. And that means they're doing this DNA damage, which is what they're designed for. And this is just a graph to show counting cells that we are having a real effect in terms of damaging the DNA. So the radiotherapy is um, damaging the DNA. The next thing we look for is a metabolic marker that tells us whether the cells are healthy or not, because this will say whether they are dying or not. So same sort of deal. Um, no, just gold nanoparticles by themselves. It stays red, so the, the cells are healthy, and you can see the number is growing. Um, with radiotherapy, with nanoparticles, the, the color difference shows you the cells are being killed. So the DNA damage is being done, and the consequence is that this kills the cells. So what does that mean in terms of populations of cells? So this is a, the number of viable cells, living cells, versus days after radiation. So this is 24 days. Really important to notice this scale up here, which you can't see at the back, but it's in, in orders of 10. It's not linear. The bottom here is 0.1 cell in the average count. Uh, the top here is 100,000. So there's a factor of a million between there and the top. So if we just take a control, which are these curves, so these are now just cancer cells from the patient in the solution, they grow. They grow exponentially. The fact this is a straight line means it's exponential. So the, the, the cancer cells are proliferating dramatically. If we just irradiate radiotherapy, you can see there's a reduction and then an increase, but a reduction overall. So that's radiotherapy working. And now we have our uh, nanoparticles with the um, smuggled into the cell. And you can see initially there's a dramatic reduction in viable cells, but nevertheless an increase. But the difference between that and that is a factor of nearly 10,000. So we've, we've reduced the population of cells by a factor of 10,000 by smuggling these particles in. So the last step now <clears throat> is to release the 
chemotherapy drug. So we need the X-rays that come in to the gold nanoparticle. They actually produce electrons, very low-energy electrons, so a small electrical current. And that electrical current damages the DNA of the cell, which I've already shown you. So the X-rays and the gold nanoparticle start to damage the cell. They break the DNA. And that makes it much easier for the chemotherapy drug to act on the cell and kill it. So there's a two-step convolution going on. The radiotherapy directly damages the DNA. When, when it's exposed to the radiotherapy, the, the particle releases the chemotherapy drug, which is now not attacking normal DNA, it's attacking DNA which has been damaged and is much more effective at, at, at destroying it. So you get cell death. So here's the final curve. Now this is with all this combined together. Okay, the radiotherapy and the chemotherapy release. So here's the cell numbers again, 0.1 up to 100,000, 24 days after radiation. Here's the, what the cells will do left to their own devices, so this exponential growth. Here's with radiotherapy, and this is now with our targeted nanoparticle. And what you see is that it goes down and it stays down. And in fact... Um, the last culture that we did of this, there is not one cell to be found alive in the culture. So, we have used um, a very cleverly engineered nanoparticle to smuggle itself inside these cells, um, use the radiotherapy that you would have as a patient that to, in a combined way, to make this um, drug much more active and kill the cells. Now, this is in a cell population in a test tube. This is not in a patient. And there's a huge amount of work to go to go from this point to having anything even remotely like a cure. So this is not a cure, but this is just showing you what we can do with nanotechnology in medicine. So I'm finished, and I'm... Rather than me saying thank you very much and good night, I'm going to leave you in the words of Stephen Fry. Um, we have a project trying to bring to all schools in Europe an understanding of nanotechnology. And we made a, a short film, and Stephen Fry very kindly offered to talk over the film. Now, I'm not going to show you the whole film, but he has a nice conclusion. Now, I admit I wrote some of it, so you're still hearing my words. <laughs> But he speaks in a far, far more mellifluous way than I do. So I'll finish you. This is, this is going to be this last minute, and then we're done. If this all sounds more like science fiction to you, think how quickly our world is already changing. Someone born in 1930 would never have believed that in their lifetime thousands of people would be flying around the world in metal tubes every day. That men could have walked on the moon. And that you would be able to watch this film on something called the Internet. 
I hope this has given you a taste of a world that's always been around, but that we are only just starting to explore. Many people think that this coming age will be the age of nano. If so, you will be the people to explore it. And what your generation discovers will be perhaps the biggest technological leap in history. It could take you into atoms and beyond the stars. Good luck. Thank you.